Well, good morning to you all again. I'm sorry we have to meet this way again. I, I really wish Joyce and I both that we could physically be there with you again this morning. We are still here at CMML, still in quarantine. As most of you know, we did have a positive test for COVID-19 last week. We are feeling much better. In fact, all the symptoms are gone with, with the uh, exception of a, of a brief cough now and then from Joyce. So we are scheduled to be tested again tomorrow, which is Saturday, since I'm recording this on Friday. So we certainly would appreciate your prayers for us. We really would like to get home. And, and preaching like this is very difficult for a preacher. And I, and I know some of you appreciate that, but to, to be able to share and to teach and have no one in front of you except for your own mug is a difficult chore for me. And so oftentimes a preacher, it, it feeds off the responses of folks in the audience to, to see if you understand, see if you're grasping what is being taught. And so to preach to open spaces is a challenge. And I also recognize that is it a challenge for you sitting in, in your homes or sitting in the chapel to have to watch a presentation like this on the screen. And so from both perspectives, it is not the ideal. But we certainly understand in the times that we are living that uh, this is becoming something that we're becoming somewhat used to, even though uh, we're longing for these vaccines to come out and longing for the summertime when perhaps we can get back to some kind of normalis in our, in our lives. And so this morning, I'd like to go back to Philippians now. Uh, actually, last uh, we did read out of first out of John last week and out of first John last week. So we are not really returning to Philippians, but I would like to go to Philippians this morning and read a portion uh, for you. Philippians chapter two. And again, these are very, very familiar verses that we're reading today. We are looking at over the course of these two weeks, we are looking at three words which have a tremendous impact on our understanding and comprehension of the incarnation, of what really happened that day uh, in Bethlehem so many, many years ago. We looked at the word word or logos last week and emphasized that. This week, we're going to look at the word kenoo or kenosis and emphasize that. And then there is also the last word, which we may or may not get to this week, is the word translated fullness that we find in, in Colossians. So let's read our portion for this morning out of Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to read in uh, beginning at verse 5. So Philippians 2 verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And the Lord will let us bless him to the reading of his word. Let's pause for a moment of prayer. Father, we 
acknowledge that even in this format, even as we're preaching over distance and through um, video recordings, we know that we need and depend upon your work in our hearts and lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak this morning to your people. We pray that you would uh, touch our hearts in some way that brings glory to you. And we pray that your spirit might lead and guide and direct in all that is said, that your son might be glorified and honored. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I think my very favorite Christmas song, at least to date, is Mary, Did You Know? It never fails to give me goosebumps when I hear it sung, particularly by the pentatonic. And I love to sing the realities of it. And I'm always mixing up the words because I don't really know the words that well. But I love the song itself. Of course, you will always get the snarky remarks and memes of the theologically elite. But they have a tendency to pick at anything. To me, the song is an honest depiction of the amazing event of Christmas. Yes, the angel did announce the coming of Messiah. Yes, the angel did tell Mary that she would bring forth a son, and that she was to name him Jesus, that he was to save his people from their sin. Yes, and, and that he would be great and be called the son of the highest, and that he would one day reign over the house of Jacob, and that his kingdom would know no end. But her experience that night, could not possibly have brought forth an understanding of the phenomenal event that had just happened to her and what the angel's pronouncement actually meant experientially. We have known the scriptures, both old and new, from our youth, many of us. Yet there are still mysteries so profound that we still ponder them and we're still amazed at them. Mary did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? That this child that you delivered will soon deliver you? Mary, did you know? that your baby boy would give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again. The lame will leap, the dumb will speak the praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect Lamb? That the sleeping child you're holding is the great I Am. That is an amazing depiction of the reality of the incarnation. So bother the great critics who wander about in their theological ivory towers. I love the thought of God coming into the world in a way no one could have expected. 
I still long to be amazed at the reality. God became a man. And we are still trying to grasp the significance of that, the great significance of that night so many years ago. Now, in our reading this morning, we are reading into a text to draw out specific details concerning the incarnation of the Son of God. But in doing so, we ought to be careful to keep in mind the context in which these rather remarkable statements are made. The emphasis in these verses is that of humility. It is of looking out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And in these phenomenal verses that we have read, in these phenomenal verses, Paul is using an illustration to give validity, give power to the commands that he has just given them. So Paul uses the greatest example of this type of humility, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There is found in him encouragement. There is found in him comfort that real love can bring. There is in him fellowship. There is in him a joint participation in the Holy Spirit. There is in him mercy and affection. And we are challenged to be like-minded, to have that same love, to have that same sense of, of oneness and unity in our minds and thinking. And not doing so in order to gain something for ourselves, not for self-recognition, self-glory, self-exaltation, but in humiliation that is produced by the Spirit of God within us. We are encouraged in this in these verses, in this passage, to let this be our attitude as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who have been saved by his matchless grace. Let this attitude, let this mind be in you. Let this be our desire. Let this be the thing for which we ourselves are striving through the Spirit of God. May this attitude be that on which we fix our attention as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, of whom the Spirit of God is seeking to conform us. The King of kings and the Lord of lords came into this world. <laughs> and the statements that we read, the statements here, in Philippians 2, 5, and, and 4th following, almost sound a bit like an oxymoron, doesn't it? For he is the great king. He is the great I am. And yet he became a servant. When we think of unveiled power, or unrivaled power, I guess is a better way to put it. If we, when we think of unrivaled power, Power that resides sometimes in men and in men over the history that we can read of in, in, in our textbooks. The result is anything but humility. 
but it certainly rarely displays itself in a servant attitude toward others. But we, as children of the almighty God, those who have been purchased by his grace, are called to conduct ourselves in ways that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. As Paul said in the verses that precede this. And that word conduct is, is a word that means to a, a manner of life that's seen as a responsibility or a duty to a group. So literally, some have translated this, translate this, be constantly performing your duties as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And these exhortations bring us to that ultimate example that Paul uses of the Lord Jesus Christ. This desire for others, this service toward others, the encouragement found in his word, the comfort experienced in his love and in action and in words, his joint partnership with the spirit and his affection and undeserved favor is what we are being transformed into an attitude like unto his. And in giving us this example of Christ, he launches into one of the most profound theological theses I, I have ever known or is known to man. Theologians have studied and debated it for millennium. This is describing the amazing character, if you will, the amazing character of the first advent. And we are awed, I am awed, once again, at the magnitude of what God has done. Now, words are always important, and we know that. Meanings of words that the Spirit of God has chosen in inspiration are always important. And there are a couple here to look at but we cannot linger too long on any of them, um, nor can we become too technical because that would use up our time and our time is precious. First is the word form. Who being in the form of God. When Paul states that Jesus existed in the form of God, the first thing that comes to my mind when I read that is, God is spirit. God does not possess a form in which Jesus could be in. The great theologian Lightfoot wrote on this, and he said this, and I quote, Form refers to that which is intrinsic and essential to the being of God, that is, to God's attributes. So form here is not necessarily speaking of shape that might uh, touch the eyes as much as it is the intrinsic, essential nature of being God. Now, what constitutes an attribute of God? And this is very important in our in our study this morning. What makes God God, if you will? Let's briefly and very briefly just look at or name a few attributes that we associate that we attribute to God. He is the self existent one, without beginning, without end, without origin. He is eternal. He is holy. There is none like unto him. He is immutable, meaning that he never changes. 
He is all sufficient. He has need of nothing. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is all wise. He is a pure, a God of true, pure love. He fills all things. He is just. He is merciful. He is full of grace and truth. And on and on and on. And all of the attributes of God are infinite in measure. One cannot take a measure and find the depth, the height, the length, the width of his attributes. They simply cannot be measured. And they're all functioning together at the same time. He never works outside of one attribute in the use of another attribute. Attribute are those characteristics that make God, God. And these attributes do not change. Who he is eternally, he will always be. So keep that in the back of your mind now. So what Paul is describing, what Paul is declaring is that Jesus, before he entered into this world as a man, shared the essential and complete attributes of deity. For he is God. Before he came into this earth, Jesus dwelled in the indescribable glory and perfections of heaven. He is one with the Father, one with the Spirit. He is God. But he willingly left that glory to come to earth. Who instead of the joy that was before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, the word form, as it's used here in verse 6, does not merely mean to be God-like, to be in some way divine. No, he is God of very God, with all the attributes that make God, God. Now, let me quote again. I want to quote from B.B. Warfield. These things are so profound that sometimes it's good to quote some of the scholars that have written things before. Listen carefully what B.B. Warfield said. And I quote, The phraseology which Paul here employs was in popular usage of his day and was accordingly the most natural language for strongly asserting the deity of Christ which could suggest itself to him. Form is that body of qualities which constitute him God, and without which he would not be God. What Paul asserts then, when he says that Jesus Christ existed in the form of God, is that he had all those characterizing qualities which make God, God. The presence of which constitute God, and the absence of which God does not exist. He who is in the form of God, end quote. To be equal with God was not something he had to grasp for. It wasn't something he had to reach out and try to hold on to it. It, what, it is what he was, what he is, what he always has been. He is the eternal God. That is amazing. 
Now we find a good example of the use of this word equal. Now when he says, when he says, uh, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And we find a good example of that word equal if you turn over to John chapter 5. So if you want to turn to John chapter 5, you can do so. If not, I will simply read it for you, since you're probably all dozing in the seats there as my voice drones on. John chapter 5, and I want to read verses 17 and 18 of John chapter 5. And Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Paul is therefore stating that prior to his incarnation, our Lord Jesus was fully God, possessing all of the attributes of God. John, when we looked at last week, said it in this way. In the beginning was the word. It, the word kept on being in the beginning. And the word kept on being with God. And the word kept on being God. There was never a change. He is from the beginning of this creation. From the beginning of time. Before time began. He is God. The writer of the Hebrews expressed it this way. We're very familiar with these verses as well. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. He is God. Then there is this startling transition that takes place in Paul's example. There is this startling transition. We read it so often, and we quote it so often, that, that we sometimes miss it. And it is found in that little word, but. It is a change of direction, a change in thinking. It is a fascinating little word, Allah, or, or but. It is the conjunction meaning nevertheless, or better yet, rather. There's a change of direction in the line of thought. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. A change of direction. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus was in the very form of God. It is who he is. It is who he always has been, always will be. But he did something remarkable. He made himself. He made himself. No reputation, as the King James and the New King James Version would translate it. Now, this is the second of our three words here now. No reputation comes from a word, kenoo, from which we get the word kenosis. And then the word means to empty, to empty. He did not regard equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Kenoo, which means to empty, it is a verb. It's an aorist active indicative verb, which is stating a fact. It is what 
he did. Now the question becomes, of course, and this is the question that has been spoken of and debated and down through the ages, of what did he empty himself? Now there are many, many theories, many, many debates. Some would go as far as saying that when Jesus was on earth, he was purely man. And he emptied himself of all his attributes of God for the time of his sojourn here on earth. They kind of hovered over him and around him, but not in him. That is heresy, as far as I'm concerned. If you take away one attribute, he ceases to be God and becomes something less than God. In what way was the word used? That is, that is an important thing for us to consider. In what way was this word used in the New Testament? Is this the only place it was used? No. If we follow the way that it was used in other places, it helps us to determine its usage here. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 15, he writes this. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done to me. For it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. The word translated void is the same word, kenoo. Same word used in Philippians 2. The meaning being that Paul did, want, did not want his, his self-denial of things, his boasting in the sufficiency of Christ to become meaningless, to have nothing. He would rather die, he says, than to have his boasting made nothing. He says again in Romans chapter, in Romans chapter 4, if you want to turn there, to Romans chapter 4, and in verse 14, he writes this concerning the law. For of those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Faith is made void. Faith becomes nothing. It has no value. And we never ask, of what was faith emptied? It just has no, it's empty. It has no value. If the promises are true. First Corinthians chapter 1. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 17, he says in verse in chapter 1, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And here the word no effect means to have nothing. And one more, just one more to establish this pattern of usage by Paul. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So if you want to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. See, do you see that the way in which words are used, typically used, consistently used, gives us the idea of what the writer was saying. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and in verse 3, he writes this. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you be made in vain in this respect. That, as I said, you may be ready in vain. Again, is this idea that his boasting would be nothing. His boasting would, would be, have no value. It'd be nothing. Now, take it back now to where we are in our text in, in, in uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 7. He says he made himself no reputation or he made himself nothing. All the other instances of Kena are from Paul. 
which would seem nearly conclusive. He did not empty himself of any of his attributes. He did not even empty himself of his glory. He covered his glory, but his glory was seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. So we would do well to translate it here in the same way Paul does elsewhere. Jesus did not empty himself of any of his attributes. He did not empty himself of anything. During the uh, incarnation, he still possessed the form of God and was still equal with the Father in all aspects. He did not lay aside any of his attributes. That would make him less than God. He did not empty himself of all but love, as the songwriter would write. So, before we draw some conclusions here, the text before us says nothing about his attributes. How did he make himself nothing? He made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant and becoming in the likeness of humanity. In that condition, he did not manifest the form outwardly that he still possessed, that he still possessed inwardly. However, we even see his outward things coming forward in the acts that he did, in the power he demonstrated, in the transfiguration where his glory was seen. He was in the form of God completely and always, possessing all the attributes of God. He did not have to reach toward. He did not have to grasp being God. He was and always remains God. He chose to make himself a nobody, if you will. He became in the form of a servant or a slave. It was what he truly was fulfilling the purpose of God in son. Here is the great transformation. But he made himself a nobody, taking the form of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. And here the word changes. The appearance now is the word schema. Now no longer morphe. He is in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. When Paul says that Jesus took on the form of a servant, he means that he voluntarily adopted the very nature of a servant. He did not cease to be God in any sense, but added to his divine nature a true human nature. These things are phenomenal. These things go beyond our ability to comprehend. This is Christmas. This is what happened at Christmas. He laid aside possessions. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty may be rich. Oh, celebrate Christmas this year. Celebrate the fact that God, the almighty God, came into this world to save sinners as only he could save us, redeem us, and set us free. May the Lord add his blessing to his word this morning for his glory. Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise for your beloved son. 
in whom you are and always have been and always will be very pleased. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for what we celebrate this month. That son came into the world. We give you thanks. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.